0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم تسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن سنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا ونفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علمًا وتعليمًا إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله. so after A very long break between travel and coming back and jet lag and schedules we are and snow we are back and this is lesson 11 in our tafsir of Surah Al-Kahf we're not quite at the end but we are towards the end because we're coming to the second or, or to the last story we're in the third story mentioned in the chapter the story of Sayyiduna Musa and Khidr, after which comes the story of Dhul Qarnayn, followed by the conclusion to the chapter. Now, after discussing the background to this story, narrated in the hadith in Sahih Muslim, and looking at the journey that Prophet Musa took to get to Khidr, we took a detour and that detour was a discussion about two important questions pertaining to the identity of Khidr. What are those two questions? Question number one, is he still alive or is, did he die? And number two, is he a, a prophet or a wali? Is he a prophet or a saint? And now we get to the story after they met and we touched on this a little bit. Musa alayhi salam politely with great adab requested to accompany Khidr so that he could learn. هَلْ أَتَّبِعُكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تُعَلِّمَنِي Will you allow for me to follow you so that I can learn guidance that has been taught to you. And there's a lot of lessons in that request in the Adab of Seeking Knowledge. And we talked about the reply of Khidr, who said to him, innaka lantastatiya you will be unable to have patience with me. Well, the question we addressed in the previous class that I want to revisit here is, why would, why would Khidr say to Sayyidina Musa, You will be unable to have patience with me? Nothing's happened yet. They haven't gone anywhere. Why would he say this? Because this failure Musa is not sure. What he's going to see will be very different from this failure, so yes, it will be at first after his coming. Correct. So. Regardless of the identity of Khidr, whether he is a prophet or a saint, that doesn't really matter here. What matters is that Musa salam is a Rasul, he is a messenger, and he has a Sharia, he has a law to uphold. And Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala has informed Khidr of certain hidden matters, either by way of Wahi or by way of Kashfin Ilham inspiration. He's inspired to do certain things. He knows that he has to do certain things but that Musa salam will be unable to tolerate them because outwardly those things go against his sharia. Musa alayhi salam is required by Allah ta'ala to uphold his sharia. That's the standard Allah gave him. And this indicates that Khidr is not following the Sharia of Musa Alayhi It could have been that this, he is upon a Sharia from a previous prophet in that region and the laws are somewhat different. At the end of the day, we don't know. Uh, Musa Alayhi salam, however, was obliged to object. When we look at the story, we see an action by Khidr And an objection by Musa alayhi salam. Musa alayhi salam had to object based on the outward, based on the Sharia that Allah gave him. Now through the events he learns that there are lessons behind these events, there's reasons going on that he was not aware of. But Khidr alayhi salam says to him, you you will unable, you'll be unable to have patience with me. And then he says, and how can you have patience with that which your knowledge does not encompass? How can you have patience with that? Indicating that he has been tasked with a hidden affair which Musa has no knowledge of. So what did Musa alayhi salam say after these two statements? We come to the verse where Musa says, Allah Ta'ala quotes him, قَالَ ستجدوني إن شاء اللَّهُ صَابِرًا وَلَا أَمْرًا You will find me, if Allah wills, patient. You will find me patient, Allah. So when he says Allah, it is purposeful. He's not expressing overconfidence that he's going to be patient. He's saying, I'll be patient, insha'Allah. And one of the lessons here for everyone else is that you can't say what you can take, what you can endure, if you haven't endured it. You don't know what you can really endure. So you should say, insha'Allah. We don't know what we can endure of something that happens in our life. Or don't say, oh, I can do that. I can endure that, sure. Say, inshallah, because you don't know. Now, for Khidr to agree to have Musa accompany him, he gave him a condition. And what was that condition? Allah quotes him. He says, if you follow me, Do not ask me about anything until I first make mention of it to you. What that means is whatever you see happen, don't say anything. Don't talk about it. Don't ask about it, whether you understand it or not. Do not initiate any question to understand the wisdom behind the action. And especially don't argue about what you're seeing. And do not reject it outright until I first make clear its explanation and its wisdom. That seems like an easy condition, doesn't it? (laughs) It's not easy at all. It's not easy at all because we want to know, right? We want to know what's the wisdom behind things. So in that condition, there is an implicit statement that Khidr is making and that implicit statement is what you're about to see has hidden wisdoms that you don't have access to and I'm the one who will give you access to those things Allah led him to Khidr and this is Khidr's role to take him through these experiences to grow in knowledge but it has this condition and you know, when you're, when you're learning, there's a place for questions. There's a time for questions, but it's very important that the person asks the right questions at the right time and with the right intention. And we learned that here. So now we come to the story, to the incidents. They go on this journey. And the first incident we know is the incident of the Safina, the boat. Allah subhanahu ta'ala says, فَانْطَلَقَا حَتَّى إِذَا رَكِبَا فِي السَّفِينَةِ خَرَقَهَا قَالَ أَخَرَقْتَهَا لِتُغْرِقَ أَهْلَهَا لَقَالَ جِئْتَ شَيْئًا إِمْرًا So they set out until they boarded a ship and he damaged it. He said, Musa said, have you damaged it to drown its people? you have brought a grievous thing. This is the verse, this is the translation of the verse. What's going on here? What's the background story? In the tafsir works, we find a lot of israeliyat. We find a lot of the stories that are related from Bani Israel, a lot of stories from Christian lore. And we've mentioned on more than one occasion, the approach that we have to those narrations. If they agree with what is confirmed in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, we can affirm them. If they disagree with what is confirmed in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, or if they uh, disagree with uh, anything that's rationally necessary, then we reject them. If they are doing neither, they're neither confirmed nor denied, then we relate them and we don't object to them but we don't invest certain knowledge in them by saying that this is it, absolutely what happened بيقين, with certainty, we relate them. So in relation to that, it is said based on some Israeliyat in the tafsir works that Musa and Khidr السلام, were walking along the shore. Remember they met at al Bahrain. So we know they're already on the coast of some region, right? So there's a, a sea an ocean nearby. They're walking along the shore. And notice here that it just mentions two of them. فانطلقوا, two people. Isn't there a third person in the story? What happened with him? Well, the ulama say that he fulfilled his role, which was to be a travel companion for Sayyidina Musa and to tend to his needs as a servant. And once Musa met Khidr, they went on their own way. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that he was there too so it was three people but because he is already in the background of the story and he's just attending and you know tagging along he's not mentioned at any rate it mentions the two of them musa and Khidr, walking along the shore and the narration says that as they were walking a ship passed by and they spoke to the people in the ship about carrying them across this body of water to another piece of land. One narration says that the people in the ship, running the ship, recognized Khadr. They knew him, he's from that area, and so they carried them for free. They didn't charge them any money. Otherwise, they would charge money for doing this service, but they didn't charge them any money. So Khidr and Musa get on this ship For free And while they're riding On a free trip uh, Khidr alayhi salam Takes an axe And he damages the ship By cutting one or two planks Or boards in the hull of the ship So you can imagine a person with an axe Just ha- you know, hitting the, the bottom of the ship The hull And pulling one or two planks This isn't one narration now one narration also says that when Khadr hit the boat, uh, when he struck it and pulled up some of the wood, miraculously water wasn't coming inside. So imagine a boat with a hole in it, but no water is coming in. It's very strange. And we already saw something strange happening with water earlier with the fish, right? It was tunneling its way in a very particular way. Uh, And strange things happen with Prophet Musa and water, right? Whether it's him being put in the basket as a baby, sailing across the Nile, or him lifting this massive stone covering the well where the water is for the daughters of Shuaib or the splitting of the Red Sea or striking his staff against the rock causing 12 springs to gush forth there's interesting parallels between between Musa and water so here Khidr breaks the plank but water doesn't come up according to one narration it stayed afloat as a miracle Yeah. No, this, this is the narration. Well, there's more details. So, uh, the, the, there's a difference here among the ulama of tafsir. When exactly did Musa object? Is he objecting to Khidr, saying what he said while they're both in the boat? Or is he objecting once they've gotten off the boat and on shore? So some scholars say that Khidr and this is where it gets strange. Some scholars cite a report which says that Khidr was invisible to all people except whomever Allah willed for them to see him, and that if they had saw Khidr poking a hole in the boat, they would have rushed to stop him. Like, think about it. You see a guy like with an axe poking a hole in the boat like, you could just watch him you're not gonna stop him yeah. right the, the the Quranic narrative doesn't tell you any of this background it just tells you this is what he did and this is what Musa Alayhi says that's it now others suggest no he poked a hole in in the ship in the boat once the people had gone across that passage and gotten off on shore so you see what's happening here between the tafsir literature and the narratives they're trying to reconstruct the story so that the imagination can more accurately see what was happening on the surface the two of them get on the ship and next thing you know Khidr is (laughs) hitting the ship with an axe and pulls a plank out that's all we hear From the narratives we understand they get on for free and either he's pulling this plank up with an axe while they're in the water everyone or after they got off the shore onto the shore. He's visible or he's invisible. Now if you say it was when they got off the shore how do you understand what Musa said? Did you did you do this so that the people drown? How are they gonna drown if they're on the shore? So basically he boarded for free because people knew him, which means he's visible. He either pulled the planks out while they were boarded or when they got off at the shore. And when Musa السلام, objects, it's either because they were in the boat still in the water, people are on board, and there's a risk of drowning. Or they're off the shore, but by doing that, there's a risk of drowning for anyone who gets back on it and goes out. So I mean, this is not, none of this is material to the actual lesson in the story. It's just extra details put in the books of Tafsir. So you have a more vivid picture in your mind of what happened. So Musa alayhi he sees this, however he saw it, at whatever time, we don't really know. And what does he say? Uh, Allah Ta'ala mentions that here. He says, Have you damaged it to drown its people? You have brought a grievous thing. You know, a grievous thing. Grievous, it's not good. Right? Here's inkar, he's, he's censuring him. So what does Khidr say? Khidr says, Allah quotes him, قَالَ أَلَمْ أقول إِنَّكَ لَن Did I not say to you that you would not be able to have patience with me? Musa Alayhi replies, قَالَ لَا تُأَخِذْنِي بما نسيت. وَلَا تُرْهِقْنِي مِنْ أَمْرِي He said, do not take me to task because, because I forgot Nor deal harshly with me in my affair So he's reminding him Didn't we have an agreement That you would not object to anything that happens So Musa Alayhi salam says Do not take me to task because I forgot So the first answer is I forgot the agreement we made Now there's a hadith which says that the first rejection of Musa was due to nisyan, forgetfulness. It wasn't purposeful. He didn't mean to do that, but it was forgetfulness. So he says, don't take me to task for what I have forgotten, nor deal harshly with me. Don't overburden me in this matter in following you. Don't be harsh with me. As I try to follow you, make it easy for me by overlooking and forgiving my innocent mistake. So, this is the story of the boat. Between the boat and the next story, because the next story is what? The killing of the boy. Between the story of the boat and the killing of the boy, there is actually a side incident that's not mentioned in the chapter, Surah Kaf but is mentioned in the Hadith. And that side story is that after he sought pardon and said, do not take me to task for forgetting and do not make my affair difficult. During this conversation, a bird came by and sat on the side of the boat and took a sip of water from the ocean. And Khidr said to Musa, salam. My knowledge and your knowledge combined in comparison to the knowledge of Allah is like the sip of water compared to the ocean. So there's just a little side incident that occurred there. So Musa alayhi salam, is, has learned more than just what's happening in the three incidents. There's something else he's learning. As well as what he learned when he first met Khidr but the three stories are the main lessons of the chapter. So the boat incident happens, they move on. They're on land, and then we get to the story of the killing of the boy. Allah Ta'ala says, فَانْطَلَقَا حَتَّى إِذَا لَقِيَا غُلَامًا فَقَتَلَهُ قَالَ أَقْتَلْتَ نَفْسًا زَكِيَّةً بِغَيْرِ نَفْسٍ لَقَلَ جِئْتَ شَيْئًا نُكْرًا and they set out until they met a boy. And he killed him. He said, Have you killed a pure soul for other than another soul? You have surely brought an evil thing. Notice how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that they encountered a ghulam. A ghulam. A ghulam means a minor. But it can also be used for a young man. Who has not yet hit puberty. So the question is Was this ghulam prepubescent or postpubescent? Had he already attained puberty or was he still very young before puberty? Very good. Very good. That's exactly what the ulama of tafsir say. They say, he was prepubescent and the proof for that is in the verse itself because we see that Musa objects to his killing by saying aqatalta nafsan zakiyya a pure soul meaning pure from sin that person once they've attained puberty they acquire sin sin can be on their accounts they are accountable for what they say and do. This boy is prepubescent. I don't know of anyone identifying his exact age. Uh, they mention his name as Jaisur or haysur but these are all Isra'iliyat. I haven't encountered anything mentioning his exact age, but we know that he was prepubescent. Going back to the Tafsir literature, we find narrations which say that this young boy was playing with two other boys and Khidr goes up to him and this is where the narrations differ there's different narrations all Isra'iliyat so there's no authority in any of them really one narration says that Khidr goes up to this young boy and literally snaps his neck right on the spot It's, it's pretty gruesome another narration says even more gruesome that he goes up to the boy and with a large rock he just smashes his head. Another narration says he goes up to the boy and just slits his throat. So these are all Isra'idiyat. The Prophet ﷺ did not mention any of these. He didn't specify the manner in which Qidr killed this young boy because ultimately it's not important. What we know is that this individual, inspired by Allah Ta'ala, carried out this act, killing this young boy. Now in the Sharia of Musa, is that allowed? (laughs) It's not allowed. Uh, The only way something similar to that would be allowed in the estimation of Musa alayhi salam is if it was a retribution, Qisas. Uh, And this is what, you, you see this in the verse itself. So Musa alayhi salam sees Khidr go up to this young boy and kill him. He says, you killed a pure soul be Nefsin. For that's that's for other than another soul. Meaning you killed this person in but it wasn't retribution. Like it's one thing for a person to kill someone else in self-defense or in the battlefield. But uh if this is to happen in this manner, the only way in the Sharia of Musa that it would be allowed is if it was Qisas, retribution. This person killed someone else and they are subjected to capital punishment as retribution. That's obviously not what happened here. So Musa objects and he says, <laughs> So it's as if he saw Qiyas as the only legitimate reason. So go back to the story of the ship. What did Musa say when he objected? He says, لَقَالَ جِتَّ إِمْرَىٰ You've brought something grievous. Imra. Here he says, you brought something nukra, Which is evil. What's the difference here? The difference, the scholars say, is that Imra is grievous Nukra is evil Nukra is a higher degree of bad It's a higher degree of bad Why? Because you can fix a ship You can repair a ship that's damaged But you cannot, you cannot fix someone who's been murdered Or who's been killed Right? Once the person is dead, they're dead That There's no taking that back so this is a higher degree of offense in the eyes of Sayyidina Musa than the act of breaking planks off of the ship. But Khidr, salam is doing this for a divine wisdom according to what Allah inspired him. And one of the, con- the condition of the trip is that whatever Musa sees, he is not to ask about it until he is informed about its interpretation. So here again Khidr says, Allah quotes him, قَالَ أَلَمْ أَقُلْ لَكَ إِنَّكَ لَن Did I not say to you that you would not be able to have patience with me? So it's very good, it's important here to to compare the story of the ship the story of the boy. You see similar phrases being used with subtle differences. In the story of the ship, Musa says, You brought something, Imra. In the story of the boy, he says, You brought something, Nukra. In the story of the ship, Khidr replied to Musa, Did I not tell you that you would be unable to have patience with me? Right? He says in the, the verse of the ship You should look at this in the Arabic To pick it up In the verse in Arabic For the story of the ship أَلَمْ أقول إِنَّكَ لَن تستطيع مَعْي صَبْرًا Right Here أَلَمْ أقول لَكَ إِنَّكَ لَن تستطيع مَعْي صَبْرًا You notice the difference here So in the first story It doesn't have لَكَ In this story, it has leka, right? So if you translate them to reflect this difference, in the story of the ship, he's saying, did I not say you would be unable to have patience with me? Did I not say you would be unable to have patience with me? In the story of the boy, we would translate that as, did I not say to you you would be unable to have patience with me. So what's going on here? The scholars say that this is an added emphasis. It's an increased uh, rebuke, if you will, because this is the second time that Musa, alayhi has not upheld the agreement by asking. Because it's the second time he's adding this. So Musa alayhi salam Hears this the second time But with an added intensity And What does he say Allah quotes him Qala Notice that he's not saying I forgot He didn't forget this one He just saw something That he couldn't abide he had to say something now he says if you if I ask you about anything after this do not keep my company you have an excuse for me you've obtained from me an excuse to not keep company with me if I ask you one more thing right Now, obviously this ship has a story the boy has a story we're gonna tell those stories when we listen to their answer and give his interpretation. So he kills the boy. He says this. They go on their journey. And then they encounter a wall. This is the third story. So they go to the wall. Allah says, حَتَّى إِذَا أَتَيَا أَهْلَ مَا أَهْلَهَا فَوَجَدَا فِيهَا جِدَارًا يُرِيدُ أَنْ يَنْقَضَّ فَأَقَامَهُ قَالَ لَوْ شِئْتَ لاتخذت عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا So they set out again until they came to the people of a town. They sought provision from its people, food, but they refused to treat them hospitably. And they found in it the village, the town, a wall that wanted to fall over. And so he repaired it. He, Musa said, if you wish, you may ask a reward for it. So they go on until they reach this village or this town. A qarya can mean a town or a village. Is Mecca a city? Is it a town? Yes. And it's called Umm al Qura. So, what town is this? In the tafsir works, as usual, they mention a lot of different places. These are all coming from either Isra'idiyat or what we call apocryphal narrations. Shay'un yuqal, just something out there. There's no real authority behind it. Some say it is Antioch, which would be present day Turkey, I believe. Uh, another narration says it was Jerusalem. One narration says it was a town in Al-Andalus, all the way in Spain. And one narration says it was in a place called Barifa, or Varifa, which is uh, right across the Straits of Gibraltar. So if you, you, know, you have Morocco here, you have Spain on the other side, and you have the Rock of Gibraltar. So if you were to go to the rock of Gibraltar and sail from there right across, there would be this town called Tarifa. So one narration mentions Tarifa. And when they got to this town, Allah mentions that they sought sustenance from its people. They sought to be guest with the people of the town so that they could be fed. Allah says they sought sustenance from its people and doesn't say they sought sustenance from them. So Allah ascribes the people to the town itself, ahlaha, right, the people of the town, to make it clear that the people of the town were residents. They lived there. So if you are in the town, not as a visitor, but as a resident, and you refuse to entertain two guests, and feed them, that is very blameworthy. It's not like you're a passerby, you're a resident. More is expected of you. So Allah mentions them as the people of that town who refused. So one narration says that Musa and Khidr, when they got to this town, they were going through the town seeking food and people refused. So then they went around looking for a place to sleep, for shelter but the people refused to even give them that and allah says that they refused and huma. and once they refused food and shelter they kept going until they found a wall a jidar this jidar jidar is a wall think of a think of an uh, think of a wall that's built of multiple stones you know you collect the stones and you, you stack them nicely, you plaster them with something. It's a wall, right? What happens with those kinds of walls? Over hundreds of years with storms and weather events, and these things break down. They get weaker, the foundations shift, and eventually they topple, right? So we have a narration from Wahab ibn Munabbih, who narrates a lot of the Christian and J- Jewish sources. He says that the wall was 100 dhira'a. So think of this length times 100. So it's quite long. It's quite, it's quite a long wall. And Allah says about this wall, "Yuridu uh, an Allah Ta'ala ascribes will to the wall. It wanted to fall. And this is an example A very prominent example scholars use for citing majaz in the Qur'an, figurative language. Because Allah Ta'ala has ascribed irada, will, to an inanimate object. Does this table, for instance, have a will to do anything? No. Does this microphone have a will? No. It's inanimate. So Allah Ta'ala ascribes will to an inanimate object. So the ulama say this is an example of majaz How so? If you say that the wall wants to fall down what would a person understand from that? It's very close to falling right? It's not oh it's likely it will likely fall in the future or even the near future it's Shifted so much that it's very close to c- collapse. The collapse of the wall is almost imminent. So imminent that it's as if it wants to collapse. That's how close it is to toppling over. That's, that's the state in which he, they found the wall. So, after he sees this wall that's almost collapsing. Allah says "Faqama." So Aqama literally means he made it stand up. But here it means "faaslaha." He repaired it. He fixed it. And some of the tafsir works say that the way he fixed it was by way of a miracle. They say that he fixed it by passing his hand over the wall and then the wall went straight and was firm. One narration says something quite the opposite. One narration says that he tore the whole thing down, he demolished it, and he rebuilt it with firmer foundations so it wouldn't fall again. Again, we don't know what really happened nor are these details important for the lesson of the story. Now, Musa alayhi salam he, he says to him after this, if you wish, you may ask a reward for it. You may ask a wage. Meaning, if you want, you can use this act of service as a means of seeking uh, money or some means of buying the food and getting the shelter that they refused us the first, play, the first time. So instead of being refused food and, and shelter You can now demand a wage for this And use that to get some food So he's encouraging Khidr alayhi To get a wage for the work Or he's, he's criticizing him for doing it for free Why do this for free after what they did He refused us Why would you do it for free At least get money for it So is this inkar Is this him criticizing because it comes as a question right or uh, an open-ended thing like if you wish if you wanted to you could get money for this is he criticizing him in a way because it's like he's saying to him why would you do this for free after they refused us food and shelter and this is the point where they had their parting of ways. So Allah Ta'ala quotes Khidr, who now says, قَالَ هَذَا بَيْنِي وَبَيْنِكَ سَأُنَبِّئُكَ بِتَأْوِيلِ مَا لَمْ He says, this is the parting between you and I. I will inform you of the interpretation of that which you could not have patience with. So now we get to the the meanings behind those actions. What was the meaning behind breaking the planks in the ship and the killing of the boy and resetting the wall? He says, As for the ship, he said, It belonged to some poor people who work in the ocean. So I wanted to damage it. And behind them was a king who was seizing every ship by force. Now, as a term, miskin means someone who is very poor. They don't have enough for their daily sustenance. So if a group of people are mesakin. How can they own a boat and run it and take money for it? But they wouldn't be mesakin if they're making money and they have that kind of asset. Mm. So, here, mesakin, we have to be mindful of something important. Words, we, we all know, have meanings, and meanings can be varied. And when you hear a word like masakin, there's a legal meaning to masakeen in the area of zakat. One of the recipients of zakat are the masakeen, right? Al-fuqarah, then the masakeen. So that, the word poor here means poor, but it also has a legal meaning. So the, the meaning of the word in a legal sense are those who don't even have their daily bread. But masakin also has a linguistic meaning, just a regular linguistic meaning in the Arabic language. You look it up in the dictionary, it means someone who's lacking sufficient means. And then a word like masakin would have a customary meaning, right, meaning what is... I'll give you an example, a good one. Uh, a person who is considered poor in the U.S., would you say that they would be considered poor in, say, rural Pakistan? No. No. no right? So the urf, in the orf, the customs of a people, the word miskin would apply to a person at a certain standard of living. But in another place, it would be, the standard would be different, right? So in, in, in language you have this, and this is called haqiqa, uh, uh, the, the linguistic reality, haqiqa, Lugawiya, haqiqa, urfiya, customary reality, and haqiqa, shar'iya, the legal reality. This is really important because people throw words out They're using the legal meaning When the other person intends the regular linguistic meaning Or one means the linguistic meaning But the other person is thinking the customary meaning So they're talking over each other at cross purposes So when we define words We're also delineating Where are they fitting in this? Is it shar'i, logawi, urfi which one is it? Anyhow, to go back to the question, we hear the word mesakin, and we may think the legal category of those who receive zakat. But you look at the verse and you see they own a boat, they're making money, they're collecting a wage from people who get on the boat. So how do you reconcile that? You reconcile it by saying that they're not necessarily that poor. But here mesakin means they are weak. They don't have power. They don't have an ability to protect themselves against the oppression of the king in that area. Because it's in connection with their weakness uh, vis-a-vis that ruler. Right? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions here, quoting the explanation of Khidr, it belonged to some poor people who work in the ocean. So I wanted to damage it. And behind them was a king who was seizing every ship by force. So one narration says that the ship was owned by 10 brothers, five of whom were sick and unable to work, and five of whom were able-bodied and working and making money and taking care of their sick brothers. So it was a family of brothers. And they were not wealthy by any means, But they were not poor to the extent that they can't take care of their daily needs. But they're poor in comparison to the king because they're weak and unable to defend themselves against the oppression of that king. Oh the five brothers? Israeliad, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, monetary and uh, right. financial status. Yeah. Like think of a person who owns a business. They have a business asset. And they make money to where they're living month to month. They're not rich, right? Are they in the category of Mesakim as recipients of Zakat? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But are they Mesakim by cultural standards? It depends on the area, right? It depends on the area, right? Mm-hmm. So here it just means they don't have power. And they're, they're, it's kind of a hand-to-mouth kind of existence. And they make money off of this asset they own. So Khidr talks about this background. And he says, I wanted to damage it to make it defective. And he says, Wakana And behind them was a king. Now we say say, Now this is an Arabic thing wara as a varf, as a adverb of place it means behind but it could also mean in front right wallahu min waraihim muhit right wallahu min waraihim muhit allah is encompassing them in his knowledge wara he doesn't mean behind them not in the in an adverb sense of behind of direction so when he says behind them or it could mean also he was ahead of them. At, at any rate, whether the king is behind them or in front of them or anywhere else in the ocean, he is worried that the king is going to catch up to them and see their boat and seize it. And so creating this defect would be a deterrent for the, from the king taking their boat by force. And Just as we have names for for the boy who was killed, we also have names for the king. This is Isra'idiyaat. They say that his name was Jalundi, son of Kalkar. And some narrations say his name was Hudad ibn, the son of Budad. (laughs) So Ibn Atiyah, the great scholar of Tafsir, he mentions this and says, nothing regarding their names is Thabit meaning it's not even a well-known Israeli report it's just out there floating in tafsir literature it's just something said so he would seize boats by force and by creating that damage the king would not seize the boat so on the surface it looks like he's damaging it and creating a problem interfering in their sustenance But actually he's protecting their sustenance because they are righteous men and they are making money lawfully and they're also caring for people who are unable to work so they can easily fix that whereas if the boat is seized then it's seized they don't get it back they can't take care of themselves or their loved ones so that was the lesson now we get to the story of the boy which is out of the three this is Definitely the most gruesome. He now says, explaining his reasoning for killing the boy. As for the boy, his parents were believers but we feared that he would oppress them out of rebellion and disbelief. So we wanted that their Lord should replace him with a purer son and one closer to mercy. Now, this touches on something that we affirm as Muslims regarding the qadr in the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. He says, I heard from as al-Masduq, the truthful one and the confirmed one, mentioning the tasks given to the angels as they uh, are entrusted with uh, blowing the ruh of the child into the fetus at the moment of ensoulment, When the fetus goes from being the mere physical form to a human soul infused with it one of the things that the angel is charged with uh basically one of the things decreed in that moment or made manifest is after their provision and whether it's a male or a female a am whether that child is going to be wretched or felicitous or joyful, meaning in the hereafter. Right? Are they gonna be from Ahlul Jannah or Ahlun Nar? That's what is decreed. So this is a complex topic, but basically if the person is sealed with kufr, then it's a done deal, right? And we don't really explore this in the depth that we should. When you go to the tafsir of the verse in Surah Al-A'raf, when Allah Ta'ala mentions taking the covenant from all of the souls, saying, bi bi qalu bala Shahitna, It mentions that all of the souls bore witness to that. There are some of the early generations from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un who were of the opinion that among the people who said Bala, indeed, some of them uh, were insincere. And that, and those individuals are people uh, destined for their consequence in the hereafter of, of perdition. So, without going too much into that, that was basically the result of this young man. He was going to die upon kufr and not only that he was also going to drag his parents down because of his rebellion and his disbelief. He was going to propagate it and push it and cause not only his own destruction but his parents destruction as well. Now some of the ulama they say that he would drag them down because of his rebellion and kufr or they would have been harmed by this boy because of their great love for him. So their love for him in the face of his kufr would be their downfall, right, to the point where they get dragged into kufr as well because they love their child so much. It's like the child has this undue influence on the parents where they love him so much they go along with everything he's about including his disbelief after they were previously believers. So that's what he said he was fearful of. So he says that he was fearful of this but notice the language used. If you go to the Arabic he says فَخَشِينَا أَن يُرْهِقَهُمَا تُغْيَانًا وكفرا. So it says, uh, we feared that he would oppress them out of rebellion and disbelief. So he is fearful of this because Allah informed him through inspiration that this is the boy's state and this is going to be the end result of that boy. And so he says, we wanted that their Lord should replace him by giving them a purer son who's free of sin free of these traits, free of this disbelief that's brewing, and one closer to mercy who's going to be more beneficial for them in the long run. So here in the tafsir we don't we don't know about anything in particular that this child said or did that was kufr. All we know is this was this would have been the end result. This is what he's harboring. And it is said in the tafsir that the parents who were believers after the boy was killed, they later had a daughter. So the boy was killed by Khidr, and later on the parents had a daughter, and that this daughter married one of the Anbiya of the area, uh, and that they had a son who was also a Nabi, uh, at whose hands Allah guided many people. Again, Isra'iliyat, they are what they are, Right? So, even if we don't know any particular Israeliyat about their children after the boy was killed, we know, based on what Khidr said, that Allah replaced that boy with children, a child or children much better than him. Much better. Uh, one narration says that they had a daughter who gave birth to 70 prophets. And when you hear these narrations, you hear 70, always think a lot. Don't, you have to think literally. Because in Arabic... 70, 700. This is mutlaqul kathra. It's just an open ended abundance, just a lot, whenever you hear that. So, one narration adds to this that they received a son who basically matched the boy in everything but the bad qualities. So, he was literally replaced with one better. And the gender, too. So a boy for a boy. And Allah knows best. But that was the wisdom. Yes. So what is khashiyah? Yeah. Yeah, khashiyah. What is it? Before we can answer that, we have to ask, what is khashiyah to begin with? Fear because of knowledge. Fear because of knowledge. Right? So here... We, we're going to touch on this soon. The, the very particular way that Khidr that describes his actions and how he ascribes the actions. Because when he's ascribing the action of killing, he's ascribing it to himself. When he's talking about the wall, it's not so direct. So he is talking about himself in the plural form but what he, that that khashya which is knowledge based on, which is fear based on knowledge is a fear based on knowledge given to him by Allah ta'ala through inspiration we wouldn't say that we feared means khidr and 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 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cuz khashya fear this is unbefitting of the divine right but we here is Referring to Khidr. And it's based on the knowledge Allah gave him. Right? This is how you would interpret it. You wouldn't say that Allah had the quality of fear. So and said, yeah. Now, because in the big picture, right, we don't want to go too directly into... Qadr but in the big picture is there anything that Allah worries about that might or might not happen because everything is decreed, the knowledge doesn't get updated right whereas for human beings in our perspective this thing might happen it might not happen so from the vantage point of the human being it's, it could go this way or that way so you wouldn't say khashina, you know, we're worried that they might go astray. Allah knows it. the parents ultimately aren't. But in the world of asbab, where you have all of these channels of, of, of potentialities, right? Qadar unfolding through multiple uh, potentialities, uh, this is the world of asbab, right? This is the Sirullah fi khalqi You know, the Qadr is that secret of Allah in creation. If you try to penetrate it and uh, grasp it, you won't be able to. Right. So we can only operate on the in in the realm of asbab. So,
1: uh, like
0: yeah, I mean, some sometimes the it's the royal we. Right? And sometimes it's referring to the source by which that khashiyah arose. Right? Why does he have that? Well, it was given to him by Allah from the inspiration he received.
1: Mm-hmm. And I am very, very little in you know, all. Even in my language, there's not so much. I One point I want to make clear that Israel Islam was inspired by Allah. It's a divine thing. It's not on, of course, clear knowledge. Not on his own. So, he's sure because he's doing this thing. It's not the first thing, right? He's doing, so it's clear. But it's still, is it possible? He, he's still clear because of human. No, know he's doing but is a fear is like he's sure it's not confusion there he's sure but it's fear as a human because a big thing now to do is killing us all is that fear or yeah maybe it's a difficult task because i was looking at his tasks are very difficult and <laughs> this will create a chaos in a society so i also feel this is side by side my mind going really thinking some things i picked that allah must have allah knows best but it could not be obvious to a majority of people because or doing these kind of things to create a lot of, you know, you <laughs> can imagine prices up. So it's... I don't know, maybe I'm saying more than... So i was just saying... I'm just saying uh, it's clear. But it's clear because...
0: There's a strong possibility that this young man, because of his latent kufr that's going to manifest in his great rebellion, there's a great fear that it may also affect his parents, leading them to kufr as well. That hasn't happened because he's still very young, but this is a strong possibility. And in the balance, it's more likely that's what it would have happened. So this is the inspiration given. And we always remember this is in that Sharia that inspired matter in that particular law. This doesn't apply in our shari'ah. If any, okay, here's the rule. If anyone ever goes to you saying like, I can do this thing <laughs> because I'm inspired and it's haqiqah, therefore you must not object. The answer, or a answer, is you can do the same thing. Let's say a person, let's say uh, some old man goes and kisses some women and says, I'm giving them ruqya You don't understand the haqiqah. How would they object if you punched them in the stomach and said, "That's also Haqiqa. I'm inspired, and that is Haqiqa, you don't understand." They can't object, because if they object to you, they're objecting to themselves and what they did. The common denominator is that both of these actions violate the standard which is the Sharia of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So these stories have important lessons, but they, they can easily be misused by people who want to pull the wool over others' eyes and justify actions in the name of uh, mystical realities that the uninitiated don't understand. So ultimately the standard is always going to be the Sharia. The Sharia govern, governs uh, all human actions. If a person does something or says something that uh, has enough ambiguity where it's not clear-cut haram and you're not sure where they're coming from, in that case, yes, there would would be some kind of interpretation if they're an actual person with a spiritual state. But uh, not for violating Sharia in very obvious ways, right? So let's get to the wall. He says, What am Maljidaro for cana, Liola, many, yet he many filmed in a Wakana Tachter who can Zun Lahuma, Wakana Abu Huma Solihan? For a rather rub booker and Yablur, a should dahuma, or a stachrija can Zahuma, Rahmatam Robic, Wammer for Alto and Emri, the decat we do malam as for the wall, it belonged to two orphaned boys in the city and below it was a treasure that belonged to them both and their father was a pious person so your Lord willed that they should reach adulthood and take out their treasure, a mercy from their Lord and I did not do it of my own accord that is the interpretation of that which you could not have patience with so As for the wall that I repaired, it belonged to two orphan boys in the city. And as you might guess, the works of Tafsir mention their names. They say, Asram and Saram. And again, Allah knows best. He says, below this wall was a treasure that belonged to them both. Now the hadith clarifies this. and says that the treasure was gold and silver. You know, one narration says it was scrolls or you know, written material that had wisdom. But the hadith says it was gold and silver. Right? That's very explicit. And he says, Abu Huma صَالِحًا And their father was a pious person. So here the obvious lesson is that Khidr is repairing the wall due to the piety of their father. He doesn't say anything about the state of these two orphan boys. Unlike the state of the prepubescent boy he killed earlier, he says nothing about their state, but he does talk about the state of the father by saying that he was saliha, he was pious, righteous. Uh, in some of the tafasir, they mention a narration that says that the ab the here isn't the literal father. They say that the ab here is the great-great-great-grandfather going back five, six, seven generations. Which is interesting because if you accept that narration, it means that the piety of someone in your family line from two 300 years ago can have an impact on you and the good that comes into your life. It, it, this is something to think about, subhanAllah. Like, the fact that you're, um, you're a practicing Muslim, you're trying to be, right? That could have been the dua of your great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother or whoever in your family. And it's manifesting now. Their piety, their high intentions, their du'as for their dhurriya, which is going for generations, is impacting you and you don't even realize it, right? Uh, we went to Medina... Uh, not this time but the previous time uh, one of the young men was talking to the guards and saying to the guard he's, he, he says you're here because your grandmother's du'as that's why you're here like, and then this guard just starts crying he's like oh like, come into the road every time Just <laughs> so it's true it's true like, I think about this with converts too right? guidance is in the hands of Allah but I find it highly plausible that people become Muslim when they become Muslim because of some dua that one of their ancestors a long time ago made who may have been Muslim. I think the fruits of it manifest in in a time of Allah's choosing, right? So that tafsir exists and I I really like it because it tells you that the things that you do can have an effect on Multiple generations to come So you're talking to your kids They're not listening to you You make du'a for them It doesn't seem to be working Well okay Maybe your great 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 Grandchildren get the message Through your du'as and your concern Right So he says The piety of the father Is why he repaired the wall فَأَرَادَ رَبُّكَ Your Lord willed Right Notice what's going on here He's attributing it to the Lord of Musa alayhi Rabbuka. Your Lord willed. And this is an indication, the scholars say, that Musa عليه salam, عليه salam, should surrender and submit himself to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in uh, these matters. Arada rabbuka. Your Lord willed that they should reach adulthood uh, so that they have maturity and they can make use of the money and take out their treasure. So if it wasn't repaired, the wall would have fallen, the treasure would have been exposed, it would have been taken, and they wouldn't have accessed that treasure at the time of maturity. It would have been wasted. He says all of this is a rahmah, a mercy from your Lord. So here he's attributing it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Notice what's going on here. When he breaks the plank, he says, I did it, I, I broke the plank. When he talks about the boy, he says, I, <laughs> I killed him. When the wall is repaired, he ascribes it to Allah ta'ala, rahmatan Rabbik, A mercy from your Lord. So whenever, whatever is outwardly bad, he ascribes to himself even though it's Allah's inspiration and whatever is outwardly nice he ascribes directly to Allah Ta'ala this is one of the etiquettes of dua who is it who wills for you and i to you and me to get sick Allah Allah is the one who wills sickness we learn in the adab of dua from the words of Ibrahim alayhi salam He says about his Lord When describing him He is the one who He provides me food and drink وإذا مريض فهو يشفين And when I get sick He heals me He gives me food He gives me drink and when I get sick, he heals me. He doesn't say, وَإِذَا أَمَرَضَنِي And when he makes me sick, he also heals me. Even though that's the reality. So the Adab in how we describe the actions of Allah Ta'ala, as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi would say in the Qunut, sharru لَيْسَ إِلَيْكَ Evil is not ascribed unto you. It's all relative, right? What is bad is a relative bad from a particular vantage point and experience. In the big picture is not bad. But even with that, we don't ascribe it to Allah Ta'ala. Because we're in that vantage point. You know, we're experiencing it as that thing. So he ascribes it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he closes the whole story. Amri I did not do it of my own accord. I didn't do this because of my own opinion. I wasn't guessing here. I wasn't making an educated guess. That the king is going to come Or that this boy is going to turn out rotten Or that the wall is going to fall It is from inspiration From Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Or wahi If you take the view that he is a prophet Which definitely in this story If you take the view that he is a prophet It makes it a lot easier to interpret It does Because if it's wahi Well then there's no question Because it's just wahi Right, He says this is the interpretation of that which you were unable to be patient with. So the ulama mention that for every incident here there's a parallel with the experience of Musa The story of the ship and the ocean parallels with him being placed in the ocean. The story of the killing of the boy parallels with him striking the Coptic man and killing him. And the story of repairing the wall corresponds to, or parallels with, what? Well, the, well, the well and tending, tending to the farm of Shu'aib without seeking a wage. Yeah. They didn't seek a wage. So there's these parallels. Uh, and there's water in, in this story and in the story of Musa in general. Right. So that's it.